Well, hello and good morning from me. Thank you. We continue our studies of Colossians this morning, and today we're going to direct our thoughts and attention to part of chapter 2, starting at verse 6 and going to verse 15. Colossians 2, 6 to verse 15. And the heading in my Bible says, Freedom, freedom from human regulations through life with Christ. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in, in the faith as you were taught, the faith that you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and every authority. In him, you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations. The written code, that is, that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it on the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. May God bless our understanding of these words and how they apply to our lives. Chris, may we pray together before you bring God's word? Dear Heavenly Father, we do praise you. Thank you for our brother and friend and your servant, Chris. We thank you, Lord, for his uh, human talents, Lord, but we rejoice in the way that through your power of your spirit, you you have enhanced those talents and gifts, Lord. And we praise you, Lord, that we can now share them as Chris unpacks your word to us right now, Lord. So, Lord, speak to us, we pray, not just to our ears and our hearts and our minds, but to our whole being, that we may learn something new about you and apply it to our lives. And, Lord, may that be for your glory. Amen. Thank you, Brian. Amen. Well, good morning. I'm going to try speaking from down here today and see what happens. And if it's all right, next time I'll, I'll go there. Then I'll, yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so question, do you believe there are fairies at the bottom of the garden? Do you believe there are fairies at the bottom of the garden? Probably not, but if not, then why do you believe in God? Why do you believe in God? This is the question 
that was asked to me by, uh, uh, when I became a Christian at 19 in my hall of residence at breakfast one day. There's a young chap called Simon. Uh, like me, he was an engineering or science graduate, and he was just having a go, right? I said, why do you, you believe that? He said things like, um, you know, science has disproved God. Why do you believe, why don't you choose science, Chris? Uh, why isn't faith believing without any evidence? Why do you believe without any evidence? And I have to say, that day, I didn't know the answer. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know the answer. I didn't really know what to say. But that day, I did resolve to study and to try and work out what, what these questions mean. And not to be in the situation again where I could be so easily taken apart. That day I decided to study until I was at least satisfied with the answers that I could, that I could get. I wonder if you've ever had your faith challenged aggressively. Uh, to me it's happened quite a lot, mainly online, mainly in the, in the comments and the blogs, or sometimes on Facebook posts with colleagues, uh, really smart people, some of them, much smarter than me. And we can easily be blown off course when that happens. We can. We come across arguments and philosophies that can unseat us. Here are a couple which I just pulled out, which perhaps just to say a quick word on arguments and philosophies, uh, hollow-sounding philosophies, as Paul says. First one, science and faith go in opposite directions. They don't go in opposite directions. They answer different questions. That's the point. The best way it was put to me once was when a, a, actually a professor at Oxford, who was a Christian, said, look, if I was to bring a car a motor car, into this room and place it here, I can give you an explanation of that car completely based in science. It's a complete explanation. I can explain that car and the engine, how it works in terms of mechanics, mathematics, in terms of physics, thermodynamics. It's a complete explanation. You don't need any other explanation. But there's another explanation. If I was to bring a motor car and place it in front of you, there is a, another explanation which is also true and complete, and that is Henry Ford. Henry Ford is also a complete explanation of the car. The industrial producer of Henry Ford was his idea. He conceptualized it. He visualized it. He invented it. That is also an explanation. It is not contradictory. They simply answer different questions. Science is looking at how. Faith is looking at why. Science looks at what happens next. Faith looks at, where did all this come from? Different questions. Or, for example, uh, I once heard it said, you can't be a Christian and believe in evolution. Of course you can be a Christian and believe evolution. Most Christian scientists support evolution and don't find it disconnects with Genesis. There are other arguments that come, up, come out. And uh, we don't need to be experts in all these things. Indeed, we can't be experts in all these things. But we need to have uh, some resilience to our faith. We need to be familiar enough that we can respond and be confident. We also need to be equipping our young people so that their faith doesn't get pulled apart when they go to university. Uh, I've read different statistics over the years, but somewhere between a third and two-thirds of young Christians who go to university don't go to church. Many of them will leave the faith. Many of them leave the faith. These are young people who've been grounded in, Christ, in the Christian faith, but they've never, never come across these arguments. They've never had to grapple with them themselves until suddenly all their peers are saying, you don't believe that, do you? And they don't know what to say. Our faith can crumble when challenged. And I think this is what Paul was referring to in uh, verse 8. So I'll read it from verse 6. 
So then, he says, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith you were taught, overflowing with thankfulness. And then verse 8, see to it, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of the world rather than on Christ. Importantly, Paul is, Paul's rejection, rejection of hollow philosophy is not a rejection of philosophy. He's not rejecting philosophies. Read the rest of his writings. We must not reject philosophy or ideas or reason. We take faith and philosophy, faith and reason, faith and science, faith and critical thinking is what we should be doing. Faith is not believing without evidence. Faith is believing and taking on all the evidence. I'm going to end that introduction, that preamble here. Those are the preambling, uh, the introductory verses to this passage that Paul, uh, intru- with, which with Paul introduces the main theme. But then let's go to the main theme, which is he talks about being rooted in our relationship with Christ. And then these uh, climactic verses in which he explains the cross in verse 13 to 15. This is the main event, the big idea where... Uh, Paul is explaining what Jesus did on the cross and how it works, how it actually works. And as we read these verses uh, 13 to 15, we discover a dramatic and forceful explanation of the cross. Paul explains exactly what happens on the cross. Let's just read those verses again. I've highlighted a few, but we'll come back to that. Let me just read these verses to you. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature... God made you alive in Christ. He forgave us all our sins. And having cancelled the written code, which was against us and stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Dense, three dense verses. There's a lot in there. And and what I'm going to do just in the next few minutes is just look at those verses, looking at some of the words in those verses Uh, contrasting words that Paul uses in pairs. So in verse 13, he talks about dead and alive, from dead to alive. In verse 14, he talks about cancelled and nailed. Something gets cancelled and nailed. What's he talking about? And then in verse 15, he uses this militaristic language, disarmed and in triumph, disarmed in triumph. So let me just go through those one at a time, those three pairs of words. First of all, dead to alive. Verse 13, the transformation for for Christians is literally death to life. In order to defeat death, says Paul, Christ had to enter death. In order to defeat death, Christ himself had to face death on the cross in order to defeat it. And there are two, uh, two ways in which we find life through Christ's death. The first one is eternal life, life outside of this time that we're in now. But the second way that Christians find life from Christ's death is life today, life right now, life in this world, life which has a different kind of life, which is purposeful and meaningful, uh, profoundly purposeful and deeply meaningful. Life without Christ is often empty and aimless. So dead to alive in verse 13. Let's go to the next pair of words. Cancelled and nailed. 
he says in verse 14, and having cancelled the written code, which was against us and stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. What's he talking about here? He's talking about a cancelled debt, and actually the NIV UK version you saw up there talks about a debt being cancelled, doesn't it? So some kind of code, some kind of debt, some kind of charge sheet got nailed to the cross. Nailing the charges to a cross refers to a common practice that the Romans did. Often, when a criminal was nailed to a cross, they would take the charge sheet against them and nail it next to them. Nail it right up next to them. And the person, the, the debt got nailed next to them, and the person being, being nailed is the person who had to pay the debt, who, who, who couldn't pay the debt. But in our case, the person being nailed next to the charge sheet is Jesus, not us. Whereas it should have been us. And so Jesus is nailed to a cross in the same way that the charges against a criminal were nailed to a cross. It's even clearer, let me just show you this in uh, Eugene Peterson's message version. He he says, uh, think of it, all sins forgiven, that slate wiped clean, that old arrest warrant cancelled and nailed to Christ's cross. That old arrest warrant, which has your name on it, my name on it, nailed to the cross. And then uh, the last verses, which... um, The last verses, which I'll just use the message version there as well, that uh, he stripped... He stripped all the spiritual tyrants in the, of, in the universe of their sham authority at the cross and marched them naked through the streets. So, the other, the NIV version, having disarmed the powers and authorities, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. For many of us, this is uncomfortable language, isn't it? It's, it's violent language. It's militaristic language. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And again, Paul draws on an image of the day, a military image of the day, that when a Roman emperor was celebrating his victory over, over another army, another country, they would bring the captives, the defeated army, and march them through the streets of Rome, sometimes naked, in shame. And in this way, says Paul, in this way, the powers and authorities of this world, which includes sickness, addiction, depression, anxiety, fear, all those false philosophies are ultimately disarmed. They are disarmed on the cross. They have their potency removed on the cross. Now, obviously, we still see those things in our world. We still see fear and anxiety and, uh, fo- and addictions and, and false philosophies. But they have been disarmed on the cross. And we will see that fully realized when Christ returns again. We see that fully realized on, when Christ returns again. On the cross, God strips the powers of this world of their, import- of their importance and their potency. Any authorities that cause humans to fear is disarmed on the cross. <clears throat> Let's just um, stay for a minute with this idea uh, of the one, uh, the one who's on the cross disarming the powers who put him on the cross. 
the one who's on the cross, disarming the authorities who put him on the cross. Because this is a striking irony. It's a striking reversal of what people thought was happening on the cross. Because on the cross, it looked like the powers and authorities had won. The powers and authorities had placed Jesus on the cross. But, and yet, all the time they were doing it to God, God, in fact, was doing it to them, it turns out. Jesus became sin. So when he died on the cross, it was sin that died. Jesus absorbed everything that is wrong in our world. So when he died on the cross, everything that is wrong in our world died. This is the strange wisdom of the cross, which Paul often talks about in his letters, a reversal of what people was happening. He writes to the Corinthians, for the message of the cross is foolishness. It's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved. It is the power of God, he writes. And he he also says, again to the church in Corinth, God deliberately chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. He deliberately chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate, says the Lord. In a complete reversal of what people thought was happening. The strange wisdom of the cross is indeed strange and wonderful. Just at the moment when death appeared to have won, at the precise moment when the powers of darkness were at their peak, God chose that very moment to disarm those powers and authorities with the very cross they used against him. It's a strange concept. It's an inversion of what should have been happening. It's a reversal. It's an irony. But it's, it's the way God works, the strange wisdom of the cross. A couple of quotes here. Um, there's a commentator called Davis who says, The cross is the point chosen in time when all the evil in time and space, all the defiance against God, was concentrated into one decisive action against him. But the cross is also the power of God to absorb the ignorant, blind rage of humanity into himself. So we get this uh, idea from, from the New Testament of triumph in helplessness, glory in shame, which I think is best summarized in that famous verse in Hebrews 12, well, you probably know it where, where uh, the writer says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. Think about those last three words. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. And I've often marveled at those words. Scorning its shame shouldn't be words that go together. How can shame be scorned? How can shame be shamed? How can scorn be scorned? Only if you know there's another plan at work here. He endured the cross, scorning its shame. On the cross, Christ triumphed over every authority, every power, and every philosophy. On the cross, Christ disarms the powers that have held the world captive for millennia. We need to regard those powers no more. 
We need to heed them no more. We need to give them due no more. So let's close this out because I've talked uh, initially about philosophy and then about Christ and Christ's work. But one thing is, uh, let's put this much more simply and bring it back to story. Let's leave the philosophy and the story because if I met that young man, Simon, he's not young anymore, he's my age, but if I was to meet that, young, that guy, Simon, again, I hope I could answer his philosophical questions. But what I would want to do is share with him, not just philosophy, but story. Not just the fact that there's no contradiction between science and faith, but here's a story you need to hear, Simon. Because ultimately, the Christian faith is not rooted in a philosophy or an argument. It's rooted in a person, a historical person who really lived. It's the historical character of Jesus of Nazareth, who Colossians tells us is God. Jesus of Nazareth was born 2,000 years ago in ancient Palestine into an ordinary family, a poor family. He he had a real life, a real boyhood, a childhood. He He grew up there. On the face of it, this man led a simple life, an ordinary life. He was an ordinary Galilean on the face of it, and yet he had an extraordinary impact on the world around him. In fact, he becomes the most influential man in history. This man, this apparently ordinary, ordinary Galilean, went around Galilee talking to people. He attended parties and funerals. He laughed with people. He cried with people. He made people better, not just physically better, but spiritually whole. And he showed them how life could be lived in a purposeful, generous, and joyful manner, even amidst life's sorrows and griefs. He gave this way of living a strange name. He called it the kingdom of God. He gave this way of living this strange name, the kingdom of God. And he said, God is in the business of bringing people who are far away back to this kingdom of God. That God is in the business of bringing people who are far away from him back to this kingdom of God. Ultimately, he was arrested and for crimes he didn't commit and taken to a Roman cross, the favored instrument of torture and execution by the Romans. But in this final act of gratuitous violence committed against him, he somehow took everything that was wrong in the world and absorbed it into himself, nailed to a cross. He broke the grip that death held over us by dying himself, by facing death himself, He defeated death. After he died, his terrified followers started saying, we've seen him again. He's come back to life. This Jesus of Nazareth is alive, they said. And these uh, terrified men and women somehow became emboldened to start meeting together in different places. It spread around like wildfire, first around the Middle East, parts of Asia, then Europe. Years later, they called it the church. And billions of people since then in time and history have joined this movement. This Jesus is here today and invites anyone who doesn't know him, who doesn't have that relationship, to be part of the story, to come to know him. This is our story. This is our faith. It's rooted in the historical person of Christ and that relationship he offers to all of us today. Hopefully, this story, which is also my story, is the one I would share with Simon if I met him again. 
Hopefully that story is your story today. I hope so. But if it isn't, I'm going to pray a prayer, which you can pray after me, from home or from here, and make this story your story. Make this relationship your relationship with Jesus. So let's pray as we end. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. Lord, we thank you today that you are in the business of bringing people who are far away back to you. That's what you want for us today. So if you want that today, you pray for me as well. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that it was for me that you endured the cross. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that it was ultimately for me that you disarmed those powers and authorities. And thank you that I no longer need to fear anything in this world. Lord Jesus, today I want to recommit my life to you. I want to be a follower of Jesus from today. Amen. Amen. And if you did pray that prayer, do let us know. I'll hand back to the worship team.